In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Tower of Ivory, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is a pretty juicy topic this month, and the juiciness is mostly due to the emotional responses that it's going to get because of all of the connections with current issues. They're all linked to the number of people living on this earth right now. And the aim of this talk is to point out the fallacies of those who purport that the earth is overpopulated and that having a certain number of people is what is evil. Overpopulation is not a real problem. What the real issue tends to be is a shortage of supplies, which is brought about by a lack of ingenuity and expansion. Shortages of supplies and food are serious issues, but I want to point out how people are not evil. Our actions can be evil, and we can be part of societies that encourage evil actions, but people remain good just as God gave us, made us. What I remind everyone of is that when you're saying overpopulation is a problem, you're saying that people aren't worth being alive. But how does someone determine who lives and who dies? Uh, the answer is they shouldn't be able to, since that's up to God. And when the choice of one human over another human comes into play, whose choice is worth more? There is always going to be a standard that people are measured against. And if the standard isn't God's standard, then people are going to mistreat each other because they can only know what it means to be fully human by understanding God, by understanding the person of Jesus Christ. The big issue with population controls is that we humans are not qualified to choose who lives and who dies. The standards of society are humanist, and they lack any objectivity since God is unchangeable and therefore the best standard of measure, whereas us men, are, our opinions are very changeable. We can go with the times and uh, fluctuate from one time to the other time, but God, God does not change. We can look at many failed attempts at measuring the worth of men. Remember the Note National Socialist Party in Germany, aka the Nazis? They used IQ, or a person's intelligence quotient, to determine whether someone was smart enough to have children as they were using eugenics to try to create a master race. You cannot measure a quotient in life because a quotient, it's the bottom number in a fraction. It's the highest potential that someone could reach. However, if potential is there but never actualized by a test, then you're never actually measuring that quotient, but you're simply measuring how well someone performs on a test. It's the nature of really all tests. The Nazis tried to engineer man's future by using human methods when our future is in God's hands and not ours. We do have a say in it, since when we shake our fists at our Creator and go our own rebellious way, we are going to suffer. It will be at God's hands since He wants to wake us up and call us back to Himself. At our own hands, we work for the unattainable, and we dehumanize everyone else to get there. And at the hands of the devil, who is too eager to influence us humans and get us to turn away from God. God allows suffering to heal us, and remind us that we need him. And it also is an opportunity to prove our love for him, which, if it is true, our love is going to be stronger than death. No suffering in this life is as bad as what those who are in hell experience, which means suffering is a mercy from God when it draws us back to him. We, when humans use mere humanity as a measuring rod, everyone is going to come up short. There are they are using their own fickle wills as guides and unreasonable standards. The question to always ask is, who's the one doing the measuring? You'll understand why they place value on what they do and what purpose the test is going to have when you know behind who's behind a movement, when you know who is financing a study that's done and put out there for the general public. Humanists are only able to calculate material value. Does having money or a degree make someone of more intrinsic value in the eyes of God than another? No, of course it doesn't. We have all been created by God, 
and we all have a dignity just by being part of the human race. Humanists are not able to see that innate value that each person has simply by being human, whether they're a one-celled human or a human that you can see. But back to the idea that large numbers of people are evil, doesn't that dehumanize individual human beings who make up those numbers? They are, after all, made in the image of God, and they deserve our love and respect, and they deserve a chance to hear the gospel. Those whom the Nazis forced into concentration camps were tattooed with numbers. It was part of this process of relabeling and dehumanizing them. They no longer had a name. They were reduced to a number. This reduction of humans to numbers is a trick used by everyone in favor of population control. They want you to only see people as consumers who don't contribute anything to society, but only devour resources that everyone else needs. For society to exist, we need people. The utilitarian view of people also takes away people's humanity because it only gives someone worth based on how useful they are. Uh, never mind that they're, they're human persons with dignity. Human dignity gets in the way of the agenda of the culture of death. And when those people, when, when their humanity is, is taken away by utilitarians, then, well, a person who does more for society, they're worth more. Uh, and that's, that's not the case. I would now like to turn your attention to kind of an interesting uh, phenomenon or interesting place, the Georgia Guidestones. They were erected by someone who claimed to be R.C. Christian in the year 1980. And they're essentially the Ten Commandments of Humans, and they're, they're very strange. They're, uh, the commandments themselves are all twisted in some way or another, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses in the Bible. Uh, but the stones are actually aligned in different celestial spheres and with different, uh, like the equinox and, and so on and so forth. Um, so a very, very weird uh, kind of thing to put up in the middle of Georgia. The first of these 10 guidelines in Georgia is to maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Saying that there should be only be 500 million per people on earth is saying right now that about 7.5 billion people have to die if you want that goal to be realized. That's an unfathomable loss of life. Another untenable viewpoint is to hold that nature is, isn't static and that, human, or that nature is static, like the natural environment is, is static and immovable, and that we humans, we're the ones who throw off the balance. Nature is always changing. When a new species is introduced, that ecosystem, it adapts. When there's a flood or a fire, biosystems eventually balance themselves out with no help from us humans. That means that nature is not immutable. Nature is always changing, further meaning that there's no gold standard in nature. Biodiversity in California is not meant to look in only one particular way, and that's the only correct way. It will change with a population boom of one species or the dying off of another species. What we humans do is we observe a biosystem from a very specific point in time, and then we say, this is how the ecosystem is supposed to be in, in 1960, and this is how it should always remain, when it doesn't have to be that way, and as a matter of fact, it's always changing. The unfortunate result of thinking that nature is static is that humans become the bad guy time and time again in all of the, the headlines that you see in the news. We'll move into an area, we'll build houses, we'll eat animals, we'll plant crops, and suddenly an owl that had no natural defenses and couldn't defend itself from natural predators and was almost extinct anyway, uh, is on the verge of extinction now, but it's completely hu the human's fault. That owl did not always exist there. Species move in and they move out as we humans do all the time. Stopping human progress for another species is placing human well-being below the well-being of an animal. Animals don't have rational souls. When animals die, they no longer exist and they're gone. When humans die, we don't stop existing because we have rational souls given to us by God. It means that our souls are immortal. Our souls can't die, even if our bodies do. If we stop human progress, 
and I mean progress in the true sense of clearing and aiding the path of souls to God, then the environment becomes an idol, and those who defend it irrationally are guilty of breaking the first commandment. We are called to respect nature, but if our saving animals causes human souls to be lost and go to hell, we have our priorities backwards. It's not always clear to understand the situation like that, but sometimes it is just that clear. When people move out of a crowded area because of poor living conditions, they should be allowed to settle in a new area and start a new life. That's more important than saving owls, which might have gotten there first, but they don't have an absolute claim on that land for all time. And if we go to the Gospels, if we look at St. Peter and, and our Lord Jesus telling him that he's worth, uh, how much more is he worth than birds of the air? Uh, I don't like some of the English translations because they say many birds, but really our Lord is saying that Peter is worth more than all the birds, right? Uh, the, the malon in, in Greek is the adverb for being worth more. And, and so we find that Jesus didn't die for the birds. Jesus died for us. That Jesus died for us as individuals. And if only one person would have been saved by his dying on the cross, he would have done it. Uh, and that's why the loss of one soul is, is greater than the loss of an entire species of animals. If natural ecosystems balance themselves out regardless of whether or not humans are involved, and then you might be asking, where does this thought that humans ruin nature come from? And yes, the fall of Adam caused the rest of humanity to fall with him as well as all of the natural world. But the theory of thinking people are evil comes from elsewhere. And it's actually not a new concept. You can see it popping up here and there throughout history. For instance, when you take something like Plato's form to the extreme, you get something called Manichaeism, which was around during the lifetime of St. Augustine of Hippo. Plato thought that the only real things in life were the forms of things, the ideas of what they are. Without knowing a particular dog, you can see a dog and you can know what it is. You can know that it's a dog. Its form is dog, dogness. Manichaeans, what they did is they, they sort of see that and then they reach the conclusion that, well, if only the form is real, then that means that the, that's spiritual and that only the spiritual is good, that the material matter, that must be what's evil, the fact that we all have bodies. And this is a Gnostic heresy because it's dualistic. It sets up two, two gods. It sets up a good spiritual god and an evil material god that are, that are pinned against each other and are on equal footing. The idea of matter being evil has resurfaced multiple times throughout history. You might look to the medieval France and the Cathars, who were also dualistic, but they approved of se all sexual actions as long as they didn't end in reproduction. Since, what does reproduction do? It adds more material beings to the universe. It's, it's expanding this matter, and uh, that actually formed the basic tenets of Satanism as, as people know it today. But those ideas really don't get widespread public approval. For that, we have to look to the Enlightenment, which is inappropriately named, I know, and it began the ruin of Western thought. The Enlightenment sought to dethrone God from his rightful place and instead put humans there, humans at the top and humans as the ones to be worshipped and the ones who decide everything. Instead of looking to God for blessing and happiness, now people only looked towards themselves. These poor thinkers ended up thinking that they were the ones who could do everything without God, forgetting that without God they cannot do one good thing. St. Thomas More had already solved this problem in his work titled Utopia. Uh, for those of you who know some Greek, Utopia is actually missing an E in English. E-U is, is what uh, it says that something's good, like a eulogy. It's good words about someone. Uh, and Utopia was supposed to be a good place, but more intentionally left out the E, because his point was that humans can't build a utopia by themselves. It's always going to be twisted. It's always going to be, you might think it's good, but it's going to be a little bit off. And, and that's why that, that word is missing that one letter. Enlightenment thinkers labeled all old thought as antiquarian and non-relevant, and therefore it didn't bother with people like St. Thomas More. The Enlightenment idea that humanity could do it itself 
was put into practice by many philosophers in the 17th century and beyond. We still see the ripple effects today. One Thomas Robert Malthus published an essay in 1798 with a rather long title, an essay on the principle of population as it affects the future improvement of society with remarks on the speculations of Mr. Godwin, M. Condorcet, and other writers. He saw people as the problem. He thought that wherever people were, that their population continued to increase until they reached the limits of subsistence, which then plunged all the people at the bottom of the economy into poverty. And you know, poverty was also known by Malthus as misery. So Malthus has this idea of a higher quality of life, that that is better to be sought for than to not be living at all. He sees there being two checks on population, positive checks like disease or an increased death rate that actively decrease the population, and negative checks like controlling reproduction, which will passively decrease population over time. Buying into the Protestant ideas of rebellion against establishments and not knowing Christianity Malthus lacked hope in the future of humanity, since he had the humanist utopian idea that we can fix everything without the guiding laws of God, and the pessimistic idea that human population will always grow out of control wherever it is. That means people who accept his theories on population will always have to put them into effect. Those in power will always have to enforce population control on their subjects or else they'll, they'll lose control, the population will grow too rapidly, and they'll use all of the natural resources up. Sounds very similar to the communist idea of perpetual revolution. That's why the two often go so well together. Wherever there are people, you have to re limit reproduction, and it's, it's a scare tactic. Being afraid of having too many people, even though people are innovative, seems unreasonable, since people are the world's greatest resources when it comes to solving problems. And there's a vast amount of land in the world that remains undeveloped. It's really hard to find good stats on some of these things because those who really believe Mal Malthus want you to be afraid. And they will look to manipulate the data to serve, to serve it to you how they want to present it to you. So let's take a look at one site. So there are all these qualifiers when you ask how much of the Earth is inhabited by humans. You might get a number like 43% of the Earth's surface is covered by humans, and that 10% of the total land surface on the Earth is uninhabitable. And they try to confuse you and make you rely on the assumption that remote land can't be settled. And then by the end of the article, it'll say something like, well, that means 96% of the Earth's usable land is occupied. There's only 4% more room to grow. And notice how they don't include human innovation and creativity in their equation. Many people who do the calculations, they want to see the world stat exactly as it is, or go back to being covered by more wilderness. Why? Because, well, once again, what we said before, they value nature more than they value the individual human being. It's completely within our purview as humans to make land usable, to adapt to our surroundings, to build in places that we never thought we would build. The humanist agenda makes a gigantic issue of land usage. They think that if 500 million people each get their own huge swath of land to settle, and they live off of that, that humans are just going to stop fighting, that all conflict is just going to go away. But you know, if, you, if you realize what it means to be a human, if you've been alive for any amount of time, you realize that that's just not true. Like, humans are always going to fight. Uh, even, even ones who uh, know God and love him, they're still going to fight. And people, they're not going to stop grasping or trying to attain power. They're not going to try to conquer even more of their own space. Uh, and everyone's not going to just magically live in harmony if they're given more land. And that is the pattern, right? We see this over and over. It's too much faith in humanity. If you go to, to Star Trek, right, Gene Roddenberry thinks that uh, humans will just... They don't, they don't need money in the future, that everyone, no one will take more than they need, and everything will be done, there won't be any merit in it, and it's just, they're unrealistic ideas. And a lot of those ideas, especially when they're talking about limiting resources, they're, they're forcing, or they're inciting fear in a lot of the public. They're forcing them to share their unrealistic ideals. 
Yet fear holds them in a system, even if the system makes no sense. But people are so afraid that they don't want to think about it. They just want to try to stop whatever it is that they're afraid of. People will exploit data to support their own ideology and keep the public in a state of fear. So they will believe and do whatever the people in power want them to do. And when fear doesn't work, they label it a right. As society becomes more selfish, you see more of this and less of a sense of duty, which makes them think that they can preserve the human species. We'll get more into what fear can look like when uh, we later look at predictions. Malthus has sparked critics and counter-critics or counter-thinkers who talk about the agricultural revolution that followed the industrial one in the British Empire, and that was what solved the food problem. Most dystopian stories show what happens when societies don't respond to the needs of their time, but they rather seek to impose the practice of humanist ideology on their subjects. They have this idea that there's going to be a problem, and they try to solve a problem that isn't there. And that's when humans get into trouble. A lasting issue with Malthus's thought is the subjectivism and materialism that it contains. One can look at poor people and think them unhappy, but maybe, just maybe, they know who God is, and they understand life's big picture, and they're a lot happier than you or me. Material things don't make people happy. They can give the illusion of happiness, but if people lack God, God is the one who gives us, uh, us true happiness. If material things did make humans happy, then we should be living in the happiest society in the history of the world right now. Uh, but the fact that we're not proves that physical stuff isn't the, the final goal of the individual person or even mankind as a whole. When you understand Catholicism, you know that material possessions are only as good as they are, insofar as they aid us in knowing, loving, and serving the one triune God. There are many illogicities in humanist thought, because guess what? Humans are the core of humanist thinking. Uh, they base their thinking on uh, changeable humans. Flawed and fickle human thought makes a terrible baseline for any philosophy, political or otherwise. But you can see the effects of Malthusian thought on society when it comes to birth control. Between 2017 and 2019, over 65% of women ages 15 to 49 used some type of contraception. The fertility rate of women in the United States is 1.782 currently for 2022. When replaced with fertility or the number of births that have to happen to make sure we can fill all the roles in society, should be about 2.1 children per woman. The USA is going to be in trouble if this trend is not reversed because we're at 1.9 and, and still declining. The welfare state rewards the weak, yet punishes the responsible with heavy taxation. It seems like a government that provides for the poor is nice, right? That's why a lot of people will vote for one particular political party because party, they think that, oh, they're more Christian. They, they give more handouts. They do more for the poor. However, a government that provides for the poor needs more money, it needs more infrastructure, and it actually needs more poor people to justify its own existence. It's, it's all a vicious cycle, especially in a democracy, because people who get free handouts, if they can vote, of course they're going to vote for more free handouts, and then the state needs more money. I mean, you get into this, uh, this snowball effect, and that's where the state becomes self-serving, Instead of serving its citizens, it serves and maintains itself. Once again, look at China. Preserving communist government is priority number one. And then comes economy. And then and they think about public safety as number three. And that's when it comes into the picture. But government is, is number one. They want to serve uh, th this entity that isn't even uh, a human. The people serve the government. And this, by the way, is the opposite of Christian governments. And we're going to get into that a little bit next month, so hang tight on that. The myth of overpopulation really gets debunked as science whenever it makes predictions. The easiest way to tell a model is false is if the predictions exceed what a maximum would be. If the growth is exponential without reaching upper limit, or that limit exceeds 100%, obviously the model is a bad model. Some predictions only give a little snippet of the numbers, and they try to make it like, uh, a situation is really worse or better than, than what it is. For instance, if you were to go back 20 years and look at global warming gra graphs, 
a lot of them did this. They looked at the average increase of temperature over 150 years, but they would they would really uh, they would really compress it so it looked like it was um, you know it looked from all the way at the bottom of zero all the way to the top. But if you look at the numbers themselves, it was only a one degree increase, right? And if you go to look at uh, there was a volcano that erupted in medieval times and that decreased Earth's temperature for a couple hundred years by, by a couple degrees and, and it ruined a lot of a lot of crops. But that uh, uh, one degree over 150 years really isn't all that much uh, in, in, in the grand scheme of things. And of, but of course, they want to make you think that, oh, the Earth is heated up this much on this graph and therefore it's going to keep heating up until it's uninhabitable and we're living on a giant volcano. Uh, you can see this too, not only in population, not only in, uh, in, in the topic at hand, but more recently in gas prices. Uh, some of the news stations have been trying to show that gas prices have dropped, right? And, but the graph that they're using, they're looking at the last three days. So it looks like, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're on the, the downswing of things. But then uh, when you look at, I don't know, the last two years and how all the extra green taxes put on gas have been hiking it up, you realize, and, and the actual price is about double where it was, you realize that that's, that's not the case. Gas prices are not dropping. So you need to look at uh, kind of the big picture, big numbers, how much uh, is the increase or how much is the decrease. Generally, overpopulation myths don't rely upon those little snippets of data. They show you grand predictions. Uh, they might get the rate of change from a very small time frame, right? And, if, and they'll use that for their predictions. So if a new city comes into existence and its, its population has, let's say, increased by 10,000% in the first 20 years that it popped up in the middle of nowhere, uh, you can't expect a 10,000 increase, rate of 10,000% for the next 200 years. It's, it's just insane the number of people you have to have moving in. Uh, so you have to also know maybe, maybe a little bit of calculus, right? Rate of change and how much it's, it's really affecting. For instance, a Dr. Robert White Stevens, running numbers in 1966, predicted that doomsday would be here on November 13th, 2026, when the Earth's population would reach 50 billion people. That's five zero billion people. And we'd have more people than we could feed. So... Uh, you know, just looking at our times, there are a lot of things that, a lot of more complicated factors that go into these predictions. And so just sheer numbers or sheer rate of change, it, it's, it's not enough. And we have to look at the bigger picture. We need to know what the time period we're making these predictions in. We have to know what the limiting factors are on those. Making predictions is, is complicated, and there's an immense number of contingencies that you have to include. And what I've seen, there seems to have been a shift from uh, the, the, the motto, the earth can't support all these people, since a large portion of the world is making it work, to uh, an MO more like, we must live in harmony with the environment. Uh, the latter puts emotions into the situation and the sense of responsibility. Right? It tricks people into think that they're the ones preserving animals and vegetative life. They're the ones who are saving, uh, saving the rainforest and doing all of these things. And this sense of responsibility, though, it's unfortunate, it doesn't extend to preserving unborn human lives on Earth. But maybe that's why the environment is chosen as an easy way up, because environment is, as a term, is just so very vague. Environment means many things to many different people, meaning that there are all sorts of statistics people can pull from to support their cause of helping the environment. When I was in eighth grade, I remembered hearing that bananas were going to go extinct within the next decade since our consumption of them, especially since the baby boomers were supposed to be consuming more than they could grow, uh, that that was going to cause bananas to become extinct from over-harvesting. But what can we take away from that? It makes it seem like humans are the problem. And more specifically, they're targeting the elderly, right? They're targeting that generation that was coming up on retirement. And the new threat to bananas is a blight. And if the disease is going to strike a plant, then the answer is diversification of crops. So the world doesn't have to face a banana famine, just like Ireland did with potato famine of 1845. When a problem actually gets analyzed for what it is, 
then the real source of the problem can be found and it can be fixed. Because when you realize that they're not, you can't harvest enough bananas to be detrimental uh, to the plant unless you're like chopping into the plant and cutting it down. Uh, but uh, disease, disease is what can really affect production of, of some fruits and vegetables. But we find the easy answer for many so-called scientists nowadays is that there are just too many people and the answer is to cut down on the number of people in all of our cases. I've said it many times before, but you must pay attention to language. What kind of terms are they using? They often use adjectives with a negative connotation. For instance, population explosion, or another, the population bomb, an article written back in the 60s. Explosions are destructive, and the terms get you to forget that we're talking about actual human beings. These numbers aren't in the abstract. These numbers represent actual people who are there, who have human lives, they have families, they have children, they are children themselves. Questions on a test that can be phrased to sway you one way or the another. Search results can sway you to think one way over another. Even the suggested autofill when you're typing something out on the internet, those results can, can sway what you're looking at and uh, they can make you go in one particular way if, you, if you're kind of on the edge. Just one priest's evaluation of the current situation is that we're more uh, in an ideological war than anything else. Granted, that ideological war results in over a million babies being murdered each year, but you can see how ideas have consequences. That, that's a consequence of an idea that we've had, an idea that was not from God, an idea from the devil, and an idea where we put faith in ourselves. If we can fix misconceptions and reveal the issues behind humanist thought, then people should begin abandoning it, hopefully. Uh, but that humanist ideology, it supplants God. It makes man a wolf to his fellow man when you release the unchecked emotions of humans upon each other. Humanism is why the nuclear family is being attacked. It seems illogical if there's contraception, then why would people care about the smallest unit of society if they can be rendered sterile, if they don't have to have kids, if they can just take a pill or whatever else? And the answer is that there's more at stake than just population control when you begin talking about one man and one woman having children together. The issue is stability, since that stability, that pattern, points to humanity being given an unchangeable nature by God. So since the nuclear family is it's, it's stable, it's, it's unchanging, it actually points back to the existence of God, who is himself unchanging. And so attacking the nuclear family uh, attacks uh, a system that's been put here by God. It's saying we don't have to go by this, this structure anymore in society. We can make our own structure. So humanism also attacks the nuclear family because it wants to snuff out love and true love at that. The kind of love that would cause a man to fight to protect his wife and children is unacceptable to the humanist agenda since that love might get in the way of the next step in whatever the humanist plan is. In the nuclear family, children are an integral part of that unit and they must never be broken up from their parents unless it's absolutely necessary uh, you know, for, for their lives to be saved and not just, oh, well, they're going to suffer from depression so we have to get them out of there now. Uh, no, no, there's a goodness in the nuclear family. There's a goodness in uh, a child having a mother and a father that, that are their own. But what happens when the state thinks there are too many children and families have to give up one of theirs? Ancient Greece was a statist government. They, they believed in putting the state above everything else, similar to China. They knew they needed a certain number of children, so at different times they would, they would encourage couples to conceive when they needed perhaps a bigger army or they're anticipating some, some war down the road. And they would force them to abort their children when they had too many people, when they thought, oh, well, there's going to be a crop shortage or something's going to be coming on the horizon. And China did this as well. The emperor wanted a massive army, so he wanted birds. Then the communist, communism usurps power and forces the one-child policy. They did the math, and now they're allowing two children to couples because they know that their entire country would get destabilized and they just uh, peter out of existence. If the nuclear family is strong, it will fight those types of influences. 
It will resist governments that see children as being reared for the state and not as a gift from God. The scenario in China makes the statist government look stupid. By over-regulating, they've ruined the balance of each nuclear family union. Whereas if they had not imposed anything on couples to either have more children or to, to abort their children, uh, then they could have just let it all naturally happen, right? Uh, the, they very well could have just been dealing with non-artificial numbers, and the population could have balanced itself out anyway. I've mentioned this link before, but now ask yourself why political support would be given to all of the following. Welfare, contraception, abortion, divorce, homosexuality, transgenderism, or environmentalism, uh, with headlines such as links Rehabilitation's biggest problem, humans. Right? What do all of those have in common? Their common denominator is that they render the sexual act sterile, directly or indirectly, by undercutting the family. The they divorce sex from its purpose and thus support a separation between the reproductive act, as God intended it to be, versus the sexual act as meaningless recreation by humans that doesn't result in any new life or any love. All of these things weaken the state too. Plato was a pagan philosopher, and he thought that people were subservient to the state, that the state was its own entity, and that people were to be slaves to the government. But how does that differ from Christianity? The Catholic government is supposed to serve the people. It's supposed to make food and services available to them so that they might be free to follow the gospel. It's not going to provide everything for them but it's going to make sure that they don't have to worry about their basic needs so that they can come to know Jesus in this life and they be, can become virtuous human beings who are living their own lives. They're supporting themselves. They're supporting their families and so that when they die, they can go to heaven. This might sound off to some folks, especially those who have grown up hearing propaganda like JFK's famous line, ask not what you can do for your, not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. This earthly life is not the end-all, be-all of existence. Heaven is. Being with God forever, which is heaven, is the only thing that we should be pre preparing for in this life. Heaven is our ultimate goal. Other goods would be proximate ends, like buying food to maintain your lives. Uh, you would only, when you start eating too much food, then it then detracts from your, your virtue. and you're, you're not building the virtue of temperance, and it can get in the way of you getting to heaven. But just... You need, as a human, you have a body, you need food to eat. Buying food to get to eat is a good thing because you need to live your life. You need to live out the virtues. You need to live your life so you can get to know God. But the end of everything we do, both small things and moral acts, should put God as our final end. We're always working towards him. There's confusion in society between what is right and what is wrong. Our society needs God to help us understand because people cannot figure it out on their own. There are often double standards and contradictory principles at play. For instance, there's this Marvel movie, Infinity War. The main villain, Thanos, buys into Malthus's thought. He sees the number of people as the enemy. So he gathers uh, some of these magic stones to complete something called the Infinity Gauntlet, which would allow him to do anything that he wanted. Once the gauntlet is completed, guess what his wish was? It was to kill half of every single species, every single person as well, in the entire universe. And it's this sad moment at the end of the film where you see it happen as Thanos kind of blips half the universe out of existence. Loved ones turn around and they see their spouse and their children turn to ash. I saw it in theaters and children started crying at the ending uh, while the rest of the theater was making no noise whatsoever. They were all astonished that the bad guy had won. My question is how people can watch a movie and they can see Thanos as being evil, yet when it comes to the same ideology that surrounds them and influences both their real-life actions and the minds of their children, they seem to not feel anything. They seem to not understand that anything is wrong. For instance, let's look at some numbers. Since Roe v. Wade, there have been well over 62 million abortions in the United States. Levonorgestrel, or the morning after pill, is an abortifacient 
since it prevents a newly conceived human from implanting in the mother's womb and growing. The World Health Organization, which has its own agenda, listed as one of its essential medications. It has been used since 1970, and in 2016, more than 2 million doses were prescribed in the United States alone. That's potentially 2 million uh, children that were, were aborted. With the increased usage of oral emergency contraception, up beyond 20% of women in 2015, you can imagine it's only gone up as the numbers of births are, have started to go, on, go down since uh, the COVID shutdown. A conservative estimate is that 20 million babies have been aborted by the morning after pill in the United States alone since 1970. If around 2% of the American population identifies as homosexual, and there are over 330 million people in the United States, that means that 6.6 .6 million people are not having babies in the natural way. Then assuming an average fertility rate of 1.9 per woman, that means that over the past two generations of fertility cycles, there are over 13 million people missing because of homosexuality. The numbers of transgenders are too small to factor in for the, the grand population loss, but sterilizations do contribute in their own way. In 2017 to 2019, as I said before, over 65% of women aged 15 to 49 have used contraception. That is all non-emergency contraception factored in. The changing results of usage make it very difficult to calculate how many people contrac contraception has stopped being conceived or born. What we do know before marketed contraception was that the fertility rate of women in the United States, at least in the 1800s, was over seven per woman. Each woman was, on average, would bear seven children over the course of her life. That means that there's been a 70% decrease in the number of births that there probably should be, considering modern medicine as well. In 2020, there were 3.6 million births, meaning that we're probably missing about 10 million births per year in the United States alone because of contraception. Track that back to the 60s, and you might get a number that's about 300 million missing people when the fertility rate was three back then. Uh, if you did it with this current rate, it would be 600 million if it was the, this, the same rate of 2020 uh, all the way back. But you start running into those natural limitations. So I think that 300 million is probably a little more in the ballpark, um, even though it's, it's more of a straight average number and probably isn't the most accurate that it could be. So yes, some of the calculations are simplistic, but the ones I've given you, they're not projections going forward. They're estimates on data that already exists. Putting it all together, our culture of death has killed and probably prevented the conception of over 400 million people. The current United States population is 330 million, meaning that an immense amount of death has occurred along with human life prevented from ever having a chance. So Thanos can eat his heart out. Putting aside the problems that come with more people, we should be shocked by how much more drastic our own human efforts have been at killing ourselves over even a, a fake cartoon was able to do. That's, that's over 100%, right? That 400 million of the people that should be here right now. Some questions to ask yourself regarding the people who want to regula regulate population. Who decides what a suitable population size is? What is that number actually based on? How do they know resources will actually run out? How do they know that uh, they won't start trading with someone else or they'll find some other deposit of uh, material that they need? Who decides on the material level what a happy life consists of? Uh, do, you, do you think if you have one uh, iPad that if you have a second iPad, you're going to be twice as happy as you would otherwise? You know, how, how do they get this happiness factor that life is worth living at at a certain point? Why do they think no one will be able to solve a shortage problem with a method other than contraception? Why is it always, well, there are too many people, we have to decrease people. Why isn't it that they're looking into uh, more creative ways to solve humanity's problems, more creative ways to support bigger populations? Why are their answers the only answers? 
why, why can't you, you find other people who are trying to solve these things? To summarize overpopulation, let's look at India. You might think that with over 1.3 billion people and poverty and hunger rampant, that India has an overpopulation problem. But what's really going on? The answer seems to be that India has two main problems, but really only one at the end of the day. The first is a sex problem, and the second overarching problem is a religion problem. The sex issue is people having children outside of marriage when they can't even support themselves. Recall that Catholics are not supposed to get married until the day that they're ready to have children, but to make it to that day, they have to be able to support not only themselves, but the family as well. They can't start having children if, if they're not willing, if they're not ready to have that structure in place for them. If Indians avoided, avoided sex until they got married and didn't get hitched until they could support children, their children would be better taken care of and their family life would be as God intended it to be. Another facet of their religion problem is the sacredness of cows. Currently, there are over 302 million cows roaming India. Doesn't even count the other types of species uh, that are there. And since cows are untouchable, not only will they stop your bus for hours on end if they decide to just lie down in the middle of the street, that means that they eat vast amounts of grain and produce. Imagine if some of those cows were, I don't know, turned into steaks. They would stop eating some of the food that would be available to Indians, and they'd become food themselves, as long as they didn't overdo it and maybe had a way of regulating them. Uh, and imagine, yeah, Indians could meet that quota of food, and they'd get more protein necessary for development, and probably be a lot healthier, too. The myth of overpopulation can be likened to a dye factory that's leaking out dye into a river. The people downstream are distraught, and they're obsessed at cleaning off the dye from plants and the riverbank and everything that the water touches. If all they focus on is how terrible the dye is, and all they do is clean off everything that the dye touches, they're neglecting the real issue. The real issue is the leak up the stream. If the leak was fixed, the dye problem would be solved. The real issue in most countries is sexual morality, but the world wishes to ignore this and treat the symptoms instead of the cause. It's easier to throw life away than it is to nurture it. It's easier to enable someone than it is to change a person's behavior. It is especially easier to enable people when you think you can make a, a hefty profit off of their situation and, and, and what they're doing, what they want to continue doing. When the United States sends food to help citizens of a country who have been starving in a civil war, but that food sits on the docks because a dictator wants to control all the food uh, and along with it the people, where's the actual problem? Is it really a food shortage in the country? Is it really a food shortage in the world? Or is it a transportation slash supply problem? If we looked toward God for solutions, and try to live our lives in accord with what he taught us, we would be better off. This earthly life would become a preparation for the next life, and societies would make it easier for humans to become Catholic and to get to heaven. There would be more cooperation in societies, and not those trying to lord it over each other, but to in encourage this, uh, this true development towards, towards heaven. It's not that this life would become easy, but there would be a greater joy and a peace on earth, as a preparation for the everlasting life to come. So that's my talk on this. My next talk is going to be April 21st, and it will be on the social rights of Jesus Christ the King. So I'll now take any, any questions that, that you might have. Father, in your, your talk that you had tonight, you mentioned the number of lives lost to abortion. Did you, while doing research, across any numbers of the number of lives lost due to suicide. It seems to be more pre prevalent thing, and I would need more up to the surface, a lot more advocates. Yeah, yeah, the, the question is about numbers on, on suicide, and I know that suicide, it doesn't, doesn't sound quite right, but it seems to be something that's privileged to those who have a lot of money and those who are successful. You find higher suicide rates among them, you find high suicide rates among 
the depressed, right, and you find incredibly high suicide rates among the trans, uh, transgender community and, and especially transsexual um, people. So yeah, I, I don't have numbers on those. I know that they, they are quite high. But, but once again, it's, it's a religion problem. They don't know God. Right? They don't know that they have worth. They don't know uh, that there's, uh, they, they might not have a family structure to fall back on. Why? Because uh, they, they haven't looked, um, their family hasn't been religious. They haven't known the nuclear family, maybe. So it's really, we're, we're kind of our own worst enemies. We're, we're isolating people a lot now. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not good. It is, it is, suicide is a disturbing statistic, even though I don't have the exact numbers on it. But yeah, same thing with, um, with suicides and, and the youth, too. Uh, I think, was it last year or two years ago? They were tracking the number of children that died from COVID specifically under the age of eight, under the age of 22, was it? And they came up that there were, I think, 18 deaths in the United States from specifically COVID itself, right? With no other complicating factor, just the disease did it. Um, which, right, it's, it's, it's 18 children lost. It's, it's, it's sad. It's, um, you know, uh, you, you want to do what you can to prevent it. But at the same time, uh, no one has talked about the number of suicides compared to that number 18. How many more suicides have there been uh, because of all the mass, because of the social changes, because of the fear that, that has been imposed on our kids? Um, yeah, so it's, well, once again, scare tactics. They, they like using the scare tactics, not only for population control, but to just change behavior. It's, it's their favorite thing to get people afraid. The Lord be with you. And with Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.